1 Peter chapter 1. And I would like to read verses 3 through 12. And last week we looked at verses 3 through 5. And Lord willing, we'll look today at verses 5 through 9. And then Lord willing, we'll look at verses 10 through 12 next week. And I pointed out to you that in all three of these sections, you have the word salvation. For this is what it's all about, a great thanksgiving and doxology to God for His great salvation. What does it mean to be saved? Well, it, it means to be delivered from danger. That's how the word is used in the New Testament. It means to be delivered from disease. That's another way that the word is used in the New Testament. It means to be delivered from the wrath of God, the just anger of God. You know, what is it that will deliver us from the justice of God that we deserve? And that word is also used to speak of being delivered from the power, the penalty, and the presence of sin. What a salvation. And in this section that we looked at last week, the focus was on God the Father. Today's focus is going to be on God the Son. And Lord willing, next week the focus will be on God the Holy Spirit. The triune God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. This is how Peter begins this incredible book. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being much more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, You love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. 
it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which are now then announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I also noted with you last week that the three sections in this great doxology are contain an expression of time. That first section that deals with God the Father speaks of the future. The section that we're going to be in today speaks of the present. It's going to deal with our life now. And then the third section deals with the past. So there's many different ways that we can break down this doxology. Break it down along the, the, the lines of the triunity of God. Break it down in relationship to time. But I believe with all of my heart that if you would take the time to memorize this doxology, to put it into your mind, you know that the battle between God and Satan is in the mind of the believer. And the way you and I live our life begins up here. You don't do things you don't think about. And what you will focus on and think about will control how you feel and how you live. And so the call of God is for us to reshape our thinking, to have mind renewal. That's what Romans 12 talks about. It says, stop being conformed to the world. But be transformed. You want change in your life? Be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. In order that you can prove what is the acceptable and good and perfect will of God. You want the type of life that rests in the will of God? You want a life that is at peace with God and peace with other people and peace with yourself? You're going to have to have a transformed way of thinking. And this great doxology becomes the basis for good, solid thinking. Meditate on this text. Memorize this text. Wake up in the morning and go through it again in your mind. And I think you're going to start seeing a change take place in your life. One of the most valuable metals throughout man's history has been gold. For thousands of years, cultures have gathered that precious metal and refined it with fire. You can take gold out of the ground and it's mixed with other impurities and you can heat that gold up to over 1,400 degrees, and it turns to liquid. And as in that cauldron being heated up, turning to liquid, that something starts to take place. The imperfections and impurities just rise to the top. 
and the refiners will come in there with a, a, a ladle and scoop off of the top the impurities. And they'll continue to do that until they can look down into the cauldron of gold and see their face. Man has been refining gold that way for forever. Gold is refined by fire. The purest gold is 24 carat gold. That's the purest form. Supposedly in 24 karat gold there is no other alloy, there is no other imperfection or impurity. My wife reminded me this morning that on our 24th wedding anniversary that I gave her some money and sent her to Chinatown and told her that I wanted her to pick out a piece of jewelry that was 24 karat gold to remind us of our 24th wedding anniversary. You say, well, why didn't you go and do it? Well, when I went down there and saw the prices, I might have dropped over in shock. So let's go ahead and let her, her spend the money on that one. 24 karat gold, the finest, purest gold. Do you know that there are four places in the United States where gold bullion and gold is being amassed? Do you know that there are several mints here in the United States? Well, coinage is made in this country. There's a mint in Philadelphia. There's a mint in San Francisco. There's a mint in Denver. And there's a mint in West Point. And right up the river from us. And gold is being stockpiled in Denver. It's being stockpiled at West Point. It's being stockpiled in another location called Fort Knox. It's next to the Army base of Fort Knox. And then you have the Federal Reserve Bank right here in Manhattan downtown. And there is gold there. And if you were to take all the gold bullion that the United States has stored in these great vaults, the value of that gold is $10 billion of solid gold. Now, it's a shame that our debt is far greater than that. What's the debt for the nation right now? 20 trillion plus, something like that. Am I thinking right? Yeah, maybe a little bit more than that. We don't even have enough solid gold to back our debt. But there is tremendous value in gold. But there's something of greater value 
something greater than the coins that you might have. If you if you're very carefully look at a coin, whether it's a nickel or a dime or a quarter, and if you look very carefully, you might have to get out a magnifying glass, but right next to the date on that coin, you might see a little letter. One of those letters is the letter P. Does anyone know what that letter P stands for? And it doesn't stand for penny when it's on a dime. It was minted in Philadelphia. You might see a little D on that coin. And then where was it minted? In Denver. You might see a W on that coin. And where was that minted? West Point. People will give their life to the pursuit of gold and money and wealth. On March 25th of this year, when the United States was shut down, gold was selling. It dropped off, selling for, I think, 800 and... 50-some dollars an ounce. Now, I don't know that because I have gold and I invest, okay? But now the price of gold has gone up. Does anybody know what the value of gold was on Friday of this last week? No? I'm pulling from my memory, and I think it was over $1,200. Over $1,200 an ounce. So after it tanked, when the nation was shut down, as we begun to open up, the price and value of gold has gone higher and higher. The same thing happened with silver. The same thing happened with another precious metal, platinum. But then there's an even more precious metal in value than gold. Does anybody know what it is? Okay, I'm thinking of palladium. That's another precious metal that is more valuable than gold today. It's used in crowns and electronics It's used in automobiles. Every automobile that's new has what's called a catalytic converter in it. That catalytic converter takes all the exhaust and all the nasty stuff that would normally go into the environment and using that incredibly expensive metal sucks the carbons out of the pollution. There are things that are extremely valuable today. But there is something that is more valuable. More valuable than that gold that can lose its value with an announcement of economic news. It can plunge in value. But this thing that is of greater value than gold will never lose its value. This thing is forever. And this text 
that we are looking at today. Speaks of this valuable thing. In verse 7, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire. It doesn't matter if you take a gold and you heat it up and you skim all of the impurities out until you've got 24 karat gold. This faith is more precious than gold. I want to speak to you today about a life of faith in Christ. A life of faith in Christ. If you are a Christian today, if there was a moment in time when you called out on the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior and you believed on Him, believing that He could save, believing that He lived for you and died for you, was buried for you and rose again from the dead, if your confidence and trust in his, is in Him and His saving work, then you're a Christian. And there is something that is true about Christians. Christians continue to live by faith. The life that started in faith perseveres in faith. A true believer never loses their faith. Even when that faith is put through testing, the faith is never burned up. The faith is never consumed. The faith never disappears. Because the faith has an object. And yet in this life, this life, this present life, this life under the sun is going to be filled with trials. I don't know what trials you go through. You might have trials that are related to your physical body. I get that. You may have trials that are related to relationships with other people. You might have trials that are in relationship to finances. You know the pressure of not having what you need. That you don't have friends that you desire. That your body is falling apart. Or you might be facing the lack of a relationship with God himself. Life under the sun is full of trials. By the way, the word that's used in this text about trials, let's see if we can find it here, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. That word trial in the original language could speak to the temptations that you face from, from sin. 
That's certainly one of the ways that it is used in the Bible. The attempt to make someone do something that's wrong, an enticement to disobedience. But another way that that word is used in the Bible is an attempt to learn the nature or character of something. Just like the gold is put through the fire, your faith is put through a trial not to destroy your faith, but to reveal your faith. To show the true character of your faith. You see the difference? God never gives you a trial to consume you, to defeat you, to destroy you. God will give a believer a test, a trial to reveal the genuineness of believing faith. But I want you to note the first two words of verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. In this. What is the this in this passage? Well, I don't have last week's text up here, but the in this of verse 6 points to the last expression in verse 5, the last time. God wants us to understand if we begin to think about what's going to take place in the last days, what's on the other side of all of our trials, what is past the darkness, past the fog, if we can get our minds settled on the last, the end, the coming, the redemption, the glorification in this you can greatly rejoice. And twice in the text, he talks about greatly rejoicing. It begins in verse 6, and it ends in the end of verse 8. Twice, you greatly rejoice. And then there's another main verb in this text, and it's the word, you love him, in verse 8. Those three references, twice to you greatly rejoice, once to you love him, are all present tense verbs. And what the text is saying is in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your trials of life, if you're a believer, there's something that you can continue greatly rejoice in, and your life's going to be marked by loving the Lord. And that's how you get through trials. And then there's a fourth, fourth verb. Actually, it's a third verb because greatly rejoice is the same verb. There's a fourth verb found in verse 7, and it's a passive. May be found. You are going to be a person that greatly rejoices. You're going to be a person that loves the Lord. And because of that, you're going to have a faith that is found to get something. Just giving you a little bit of the grammatical structure of this text so you can start to understand it. In this, you greatly rejoice. The rejoicing of saving faith, though distressed in trial. The rejoicing 
of saving faith, though distressed, saddened, full of sorrow because of trial, rejoices in the end game, the to come. In this, I find it very interesting that the word various trials, you're distressed by various trials. We get our English word polka dot from that word in the Greek. And what he's saying is that there are a lot of different trials that come to people's lives. Same word that, you know, James writes about in his opening chapter. The trial of your faith. There are various trials, but I love what Peter does with this word. A little further in his book, I believe it's in chapter 4, he uses the word again with various grace. Those trials are various, but God's grace, to use the English word, is manifold. It's the same Greek word. In other words, my friend, there's enough grace for every trial. Manifold trials, manifold grace. And if you're a true believer today, what allows you to greatly rejoice is what is yours in the coming of Jesus Christ. Now I want to think a second thought with you from this text. In verse 7, so that the proof of your faith Another way of looking at that is so that the genuineness of your faith may be found. Some of you are struggling, wondering if you really know the Lord, whether or not you've truly been born again. Do I have saving faith? Is it genuine? Is it real? Well, there's a lot of people that claim they have faith, right? Remember what Paul and James teach? Paul says that you're justified by faith alone and the merit of Christ alone. But then James comes along and he says, you see that a man is justified by his works. And so people have come to both these texts and said, there, you know, there's a, uh, there's a contradiction in the Bible. Paul says you're justified by faith and James says you're justified by works. Well, let's read the text very carefully. You'll never understand what James is saying unless you understand what the words mean. You see that a man is justified. How can you see that I'm justified? I mean, could, can, I, can I just walk up to anybody and say, they're justified? How do I know that you're justified? How do you know that I'm justified? How do you know yourself that you're justified? You see that a man is justified, now finish the verse, by his works. It doesn't say you're justified by your works. It says that you can see someone's justified by their works. 
The faith that saves is a faith that works. And this text is teaching us that this faith is going to be proven to be genuine by being put through the fire, by being put through the trials. And notice these trials are now, verse 6, they're present, and they're for a little while. They're temporary. But if necessary, have you ever thought of that? Trials sometimes are very necessary in our life. We don't like them. But those trials are necessary because they are God's way of demonstrating your true saving faith in Christ if you persevere to the end. Listen, my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ did not cease just because my body aches. My faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has not been turned aside because I have people in this world that hate my guts and try to destroy my reputation to other people. That doesn't get me off the path. No, it just demonstrates that I'm going to continue to pursue the things of the Lord and the Word of God. I'm pursuing those things, and as you see me pursue those things in my life, regardless of what comes my way, whether it is health, whether it is relationships, whether it is economic, whatever comes my way, you'll see that I'm enduring. You understand what I'm saying here? That's the proof that you have saving faith. So saving faith rejoices twice in the text because its focus and its thinking is on the future. The last day. What's going to take place at the last day? And saving faith is proved by persevering regardless of the trial. And then this text talks about a reward for saving faith. Now look at this text. Verse 7 says, may be found to result in what? Praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ... By the way, there are a number of words in the New Testament to describe the coming of the Lord. There's, there's the word parousia that means he's, he's, he's come and he's with us. Epiphania is a word that was used of his first coming and his second coming, and it speaks of the brilliance of the glory that accompanied him. When the Lord was born the first time, he had the glory of angels in heaven. 
When he comes the second time, the Bible says he's going to come in his own glory. He's going to come in the glory of his Father. He's going to come in the glory of the angels, and he's going to come in the glory of the saints. But this, this word here, revelation, means he's going to be revealed for who he is. This old world is going to ultimately see and acknowledge who Jesus is. He'll be revealed for who he is. And that revelation that is yet future has signs the Bible has given us that will precede it. There are specific things that we can look at that tell us that this last day, this revelation of Christ is on the horizon. Do you know what some of those things are? Do you know? Now think of this. That in the last day, the prophet said that there's going to be a coalition of nations that come together against Israel and Russia and Iran and Syria and Turkey are named in that list. That's in the Bible. And Germany. And right now, Russia and Germany are in a partnership Four pipelines of gas coming from Russia to Germany. Two of them are completed. The last two, 50 miles left, something like that. And the United States has put pressure to stop those last 50s. There will be a union between Germany and Russia. The book says so. And how about peace in the Middle East? Past few weeks, our president has negotiated a historic, two historic peace deals in the Middle East. Deals that said could never be done. And there's more that are coming for the scripture says that prior to the revelation of Jesus Christ, that there is going to be a semblance of peace in the Middle East, and Israel will be dwelling in safety. That's in the Bible. And on the Temple Mount, Israel will rebuild their temple, most probably right next to the Mosque of Omar. You don't even have to tear it down. Enough space over there. I've been there. And so we see all of these things, even in our lifetime, begin to roll out. And that gives me great faith in this book, knowing that the Lord who saves will save. He can be trusted. He can be believed on. I believe God through Christ. I believe God. And how do I believe? I believe Him through Christ. Apart from Christ and the saving work of Christ, I could have never believed God. But trust me, I believe Him now. And my faith will be found to result 
in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus told us that he would pronounce a commendation of well done, thou good and faithful servant, if we're faithful to the Lord. There's going to be praise. There's going to be a recognition. There's going to be a public commendation for the people of God. How about glory? You know what that's a reference to? You and I are going to share in the glory of Christ. Can you imagine that? And the glory of God. What is all history moving toward? Well, the message of the Bible is God dwelling with his people. Remember that? And how did God symbolize it in the Old Testament? He told them to pitch a tent right in the middle of their, the people, the tabernacle. I'm going to dwell with you. And he had a house there with two rooms. And in the back room was the Ark of the Covenant. And between the cherubim angels, God dwelt. The very glory of God was radiating in that special place. And in the revelation of Jesus Christ, Bill Jones is going to share in the glory of Christ and the glory of the Father. And then there's going to be honor. There's going to be a position of distinction, a position of honor that are given to believers in the revelation of Jesus Christ. My friend, there is a reward for saving faith. This text also speaks about the object of saving faith. What is the object of saving faith? Look at verse 8. Though you've not seen him. Anybody here seen the Lord? No. I've not seen the Lord with my eye. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. And, And though you do not see him now, which is interesting, another word for see here. One is the physical seeing with your eyes, and the other one is seeing with your, perceiving it with your mind. There is not a single one in this room who's seen the Lord physically with their eyes, and there's not a single person in this room who could truly say, my mind has comprehended totally who Jesus is. But I'll tell you what, I love him. I love him. even though I've not seen him. Now, you could have never told me that I would ever love my wife before I saw her. No one ever called me up on the telephone and said, hey, Bill Jones, there's this Jill Bixler I want you to love. Oh, yep, love her. You know, it took me seeing her. Literally, that that happened the first time I saw my wife. I mean, I knew a lot of ladies, took them to lunch, took them to artist series, took them to activities, sat next to them in classrooms, but I'll never forget the day when I was going to lunch. I was just going to lunch, and boom, she just pops right up in front of me. 
about 20 feet away. And all I could tell you is that something grabbed me right then, and she didn't even know it. And something inside of me told me, you know, I'm going to marry that girl. And I began to pursue her. I mean, she is gorgeous. Now, I didn't say she was. I said she is. But she was, she was, she was an 11. My eyes saw her. And then I spent time with her. And I loved her. But my eyes have never seen Jesus. I've never heard his voice. I don't know what the color of his eyes are. But I love him. And that love has been put in my heart by God the Father. Do you love the Lord? Four groups of people. There were people that lived on the earth before Jesus came. And they loved him too, but they hadn't seen him. There were people that were on the earth when Jesus came. And they saw him and they loved him. And Jesus would say, blessed are those who believe even though they've never seen. And that's me, that third group on the earth after the coming of Christ. But my friends, there's going to be a fourth. And that's when Jesus is revealed in all of his glory and every eye will see him. And how do you and I show our love for the Lord? If you love me, obey me. Saving faith always leads to obedience in the life. Your obedient life is not what saves you. I'm going to say that again. Your obedient life is not what saves you. Your obedient life is the result of saving faith in Jesus. What saves you is the obedient life of Jesus. There's a big difference. We don't have the time this afternoon. I've got to close. But when you go back and you read the Old Testament, do not miss the significance of what God is doing with the nation of Israel. He redeems them from Egypt, right? And after the redemption, he takes them to Mount Sinai and gives them the covenant of obedience. Covenant of obedience after redemption. Not the covenant of obedience before redemption to Israel. They're typifying something. It's the covenant of obedience after redemption. And then look at their life. They're being put through the tests and the trials, aren't they? Before they ever get to their inheritance. And if you read Exodus carefully and Numbers carefully, you can discover ten times where the test came to Israel or Israel was testing the Lord. 
Sometimes there wasn't bread to eat. Sometimes there wasn't water to drink. Sometimes Pharaoh's army was behind them. Sometimes there was complaining and murmuring in the camp. All of the tests and trials in Israel's history in those two books are couched in other expressions. And those expressions deal with obedience to God. All of that took place before they got to the inheritance, the land. And that is what God's doing in our life. He redeems us. And he brings us to a covenant of obedience where our hearts have been circumcised. And the law of God is written on our heart. And we desire to love the Lord and obey the Lord. And there will be tests and trials, but they will manifest that this faith is genuine. It's the real deal. It's truly a faith in Christ. And that brings me, once again, to you greatly rejoice. Are you rejoicing now? Are you loving now? Can you greatly rejoice with a joy, even though you're distressed, even though you're sad, even though there's some sorrow because of the trials? Can deep down inside your heart you rejoice with a joy that is unexplainable? The world doesn't have this, does it? They don't have this kind of joy. Look at the anger on the faces of people. It's like people are at each other's throats in this nation. There's no joy. But for a believer, there is a joy that you can't explain and it's full of glory. It's a joy that focuses on the glory to come. That's the kind of joy it is. It's a joy that comes because you've looked through the fog and the darkness and the confusion and the trials and you've seen the coming of Christ. He is the blessed hope, the glorious coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And at that time, I'm going to be redeemed. I'm going to be redeemed, my friends. The outcome of my faith. What is the end? The telos of my faith. The end goal. The outcome. The result. It's the salvation of my soul. You are a soul. Don't think of that. He's just talking about the inside of you. Word nephes in the Old Testament and, and the word for soul in the New Testament speaks of the entire being. I'm going to get redeemed entirely. My inside was justified when I believed on Jesus and for a number of decades the Spirit of God's changing the inside to be more and more like Christ. I'm being sanctified. But I don't want to live forever in this old nasty body. You want to live in yours forever? I don't want to live in one that's just achy and Hardly move around and gets tired. And... No. I'm going to be redeemed totally. 
I'm going to be given a new body. Made like to his glorious body. That's mine. That's the outcome. A total redemption of body and spirit. I am going to see the Lord and I'm going to be like him. Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, it's not even entered the heart of man. The things that God has prepared for those that love him. A new heaven, a new earth. There'll be no tears. Can you imagine that? Never a need to shed a tear. No crying. No sickness. Can you imagine that? No dying. No sorrow. That awaits us. That's the end game. So in this, what's coming to you in the last day, in this, the return of Christ when he's revealed for who he is, in this, rejoice. 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 That is how saving faith gets through the tests of life. Great text. So we're going to bow our heads and we're going to quietly reflect on what the Lord wants to teach all of us today and quietly prepare our hearts to take the table of the Lord.